Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, your host and author, Caroline Foran. Now, I have a question for you. Have you ever looked at your experience of anxiety and thought of it as a bad habit or something that you could work on or work out of your system the same way you might kick a habit such as smoking or a habit for people pleasing or all the different things that that might form habits in your mind? Well, my guest here is world-renowned psychiatrist and neuroscientist and now New York Times bestselling author Dr. Judson Brewer and his book is called Unwinding Anxiety. It's a very straightforward approach to managing anxiety and for him it makes a lot of sense when you liken it to the same way our brain forms habits and in terms of undoing it or unwinding it and in his words we have to look at it from that habit framework so this is a really interesting conversation I'm thrilled to have uh, Dr Judd on my podcast I really hope you find it helpful and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy chatting to him Dr. Judson Brewer, or Dr. Judd, as I'm going to call you, thank you so, so much for joining me on Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast. I am so thrilled and honored to have someone of your esteem on this series. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Huge congratulations on not just an incredible career spanning 20 years in neuroscience, but you are now a New York Times bestselling author with your, your new book, Unwinding Anxiety. How does that feel? (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm surprised and humbled. You know, it was not on my bucket list, <laughs> but but I'll take it. It's it's un, you know, unfortunately, anxiety is a huge issue right now. So this book, you know, seemed to come out at the right time. And some of the research that we that my lab's done is is pretty. Um, let's just say 
it beat all of our expectations. And I'm guessing that's something that that folks are, are responding to as well in terms of reading the book. Absolutely. Why do you think we are experiencing anxiety now more than ever? What are we what are we all dealing with that's so anxiety inducing? In a word, uncertainty. Uh, our brains really don't like uncertainty. And in fact, you know, that's what drives us. If you think of your stomach as, um, you know, when when it doesn't have calories, it rumbles and says, go get some food. When we don't have information, our brain kind of rumbles and says, go get, go get information. So we've had a huge amount of uncertainty over the last year. It, you know, it really spiked with this whole pandemic, ranging from everything from, you know, health concerns to the economy to, you know, schools to, you know, employment, tons of uncertainty. And that is really driving tons of anxiety. Absolutely. And they're all very tangible anxieties that I find sometimes easy to put your finger on. But for a lot of people, they're experiencing anxiety and they don't necessarily know where it's come from or they think, you know, that the pandemic is quite an abstract concept. Maybe they haven't been directly affected by it, but it's still impacting us. It's still like wearing down our ability to you know, rationalize and deal with things the way we normally would. So do you think there's a sort of a disconnect there between the anxiety a lot of us are experiencing and us realizing why? Absolutely. I think uh, for, and I see this in my clinic and I've seen increasing amounts of this in, in my outpatient clinic where people just come in and they say, just, they just wake up in the morning and they feel anxious and they don't even know why. And then they go and try to figure out why, which makes them more anxious when they can't figure out what the cause is. Yeah. And a lot of the anxiety in my experience when I didn't understand how the brain worked or where it was coming from was, you know, you're anxious because you're anxious and it's the fear of the fear that is sort of just self-perpetuating. And then what started out as something, you know, tangible, like anxiety about your job becomes anxiety about the fact that you're experiencing this, anxiety about what people will think of you. Is that something you see a lot in, in your clinic? Yes. Yeah. It's kind of, it. it's a self-driving process. And, you know, in fact, this is this was probably one of the most remarkable things that I had not learned in medical school or residency was that anxiety can actually drive itself like any other habit. Mm -hmm. So that's the approach that you take with the book, which I think is such an interesting way of looking at anxiety, which I'm I'm so excited to get into. But I would love to just ask you, I get asked this question a lot myself, and it's, it's a hard one to answer. But I think these days the word anxiety gets thrown around quite a lot. And, you know, we say, oh, I'm, I'm anxious about this and that. And there's a difference between maybe having a bad day or a stressful day or, a, you know, a stressful moment or even, you know, the feeling of having an anxiety inducing reaction if you get a fright and then suffering with anxiety on an ongoing basis where it's, you know, impacting your ability to sleep and to, to function. So is there a difference there for you or how, how for someone who is, who is a confused, how would you distinguish between maybe stress and anxiety? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. So the feeling of stress and the feeling of anxiety largely overlap. You know, there's this feeling of restlessness, of unease, just, you know, doesn't feel good. Yet stress tends to have a precipitant that can be worked with. So for example, if somebody thinks about their to-do list and all the things they need to do, that can make them stressed. And then when they start checking off their to-do list, they feel less stressed because they're getting at the, at the issue. With anxiety, it can still feel the same, yet there may not be something that is a direct precipitant, something that's driving it that they can find. And in, in fact, anxiety is different from stress in the sense that anxiety, the feeling of anxiety can trigger 
things like worry and procrastination and, and other types of things, certainly stress can do that as well. But anxiety can trigger uh, these, you know, say worry, for example, where stress tends to be that feeling that says, you know, go get your to-do list done. Okay. So stress is something you can maybe act upon and then solve it, I guess. Yes. Whereas anxiety tends to, you know, if you think of the definition, which is this feeling of worry or nervousness or unease about something with an uncertain outcome or, you know, that's, that's just a feeling. There's nothing as much as we try to try, you know, avoid or fix the feeling. It's, it's just a feeling that's in our body. And I'm curious on that uh, subject then if you look at something like performance anxiety where you're going to go and give you know a speech or it's, you're doing public speaking would you look at that more as stress because it's it's got a precipitary factor it's uh, not necessarily be- i think it's just a false association okay. so it in here and there's this there's a lot about this um you know that's that's probably not accurate information i wrote it i wrote a whole section in my book about this because there were there are so many myths around performance anxiety okay but, but you can think of it as you know we feel anxious before our performance because we think about you know that uncertain outcome how am i going to do and that feeling of anxiety is, you know, we can associate that. Let's say that we do okay at, at our performance, whatever it is. Then our brain starts to associate, oh, well, last time before I performed, I was, I was anxious. And therefore, I need to be anxious every time before I perform because that's what leads me to perform well. And in fact, that's, a, that's a, what's called, you know, a, a miss miscausation where there's a uh, there's a correlation anxiety is there the e- event is there there you know both of those are there but our brains correlate those and say well actually the anxiety caused me to perform well and in fact there's no causal connection there it's not that the anxiety caused us to perform well if you look at the research in fact, the more anxious we are, the worse we perform. And that's been, that's been pretty definitively proven. Anybody that thinks about it, like when they really did extremely well in a performance, they tend to talk about not having any anxiety at all. Yeah, because sometimes, I mean, I do a lot of public speaking now, and especially in the pandemic, it's been over Zoom, so you have that safety net there. But it used to be something that would, you know, send me upside down and inside out with with fear of judgment and everything. And now I I don't feel any anxious response leading up to it. And then I, I guess, then I sort of give myself anxiety, worrying about the fact that I'm not anxious because I think, well, I'm going to not be, you know, at the top of my game. I'm going to miss something because I don't feel like I'm primed for the job. Yes. And in fact, my guess is uh, you've probably experienced this when you do really well, it's you're not actually feeling anxious in those moments. Is that true for you? Yeah, for me, it's a lot of just anticipation. And then once I get to it, the anxiety completely dissolves because I'm I'm in it and I'm doing well in it but yeah I, I think it's like a preconception or a belief like you're, you're right in saying like a myth that I've held where I think my mother would always say to me oh you're like you if you didn't have that anxiety you would feel worried like you need that to in order to perform so therefore don't be afraid of it and I guess it helped in some way for me not to instead of trying to never feel that way going into something it allowed me okay I might feel this way and that's okay so do you think we should, you know, stop believing that? Well, I think the way that your mom phrased it is very interesting because this is really one of the key aspects to working with anxiety. 
So if there's anxiety and we're anxious about that anxiety, then it just, you know, spirals and feeds on itself. Yeah. But if I'm understanding what you're saying, your mom was saying, well, if it's there, don't worry about it. And that's kind of like, don't feed it, you know, and if it's there, you know, just acknowledge it, let it be there and then go on with what you're doing. That's exactly what mindfulness training is all about is helping people see, oh, here's this thing. And if I don't feed it, it will go away on its own. Okay. So she was doing mindfulness before it was cool or before we had the framework for it. <laughs> Sounds like it. I, I would love to ask you about your, I always ask any expert I have, your take or your language around how anxiety happens in the brain and body and what's going on behind the scenes that leads us to feeling very anxious and overwhelmed. Well, there is uh, there are a couple of things going on here. So one is if you think about anxiety, that uh, it goes back to these survival mechanisms in our brain. So our brain, like I mentioned earlier, when our brain doesn't have information, there's this restless urge to go get information. Yet if there's a lack of information, that can spin out of control in these what-if scenarios because our brain is basically, it's taking past experience and it's projecting that past experience into the future to try to simulate what might happen in the future based on what's happening right now. So it takes the information right in the present moment and it says, okay, here's what I know now. Based on what happened before, I'm gonna kind of simulate what might happen in the future. If we don't have accurate information, that's where it spirals out of control into all these what if scenarios and we get anxiety. So the way I think of it is, you know, these are these are survival mechanisms uh, that spin out of control that then lead to, ironically make it harder for us to survive when we're anxious because when we're anxious we can't think and plan it's harder for our brain to work so that's one aspect of it the other is if you look from a neurobiologic perspective there are certain brain networks that get really activated whenever we get caught up in anxiety so for example when somebody's worrying when their their mind is spiraling out of control you know basically this fear of the unknown um, there, there's a network of brain regions called the default mode network that gets activated. In particular, there's a brain region called the posterior cingulate cortex that gets really activated. And this, this one's interesting because it also gets activated when we ruminate, when we regret things from the past. It also gets activated when we're craving something. Okay. And yeah, so there, there's this overlap there, but it gets really interesting because This is the specific brain region that when my lab over 10 years ago, we started studying experienced meditators. And when we looked across the entire brain, this brain region was really, really deactivated in experienced meditators where it's typically activated in novices. And we went on to do a bunch of work where we could link up people's subjective experience with their brain activity. Long story short, this brain region seems to be a marker of getting caught up in our experience. So when somebody's caught up in worrying, this region gets activated. And when somebody's meditating or when somebody's mindful, or even when somebody's curious, this brain region deactivates. Okay. Wow. That's very interesting. Something that I struggle with uh, when it comes to, I guess, meditation and mindfulness and on all of those things and I I think someone who's in a very anxious position might struggle with is you want to get out of the moment you don't want to be in the moment it's very hard to sit in in that space so is that something you've come up against where this that resistance is is creating more of a problem 
Yes. And this also goes back to our survival brains. So, you know, our brains are set up to uh, do more things that feel pleasant and to basically get rid of things that feel unpleasant. You know, it's kind of like if you stick your hand on the stove and it burns, then you learn, ow, don't do that again. Yeah. You know, that's unpleasant. Well, with, with anxiety, our brain says, ow, that's unpleasant. You know, try to get rid of it. And so we start to do things and typically it's whatever's in front of us. So whether it's scrolling on social media or eating some food or drinking alcohol or whatever, uh, our brains say, hey, this is, this is unpleasant. Do something to make it go away. And one of the things that our brains do to not only make that anxiety go away, but also to tr where this, you know, they're spinning out in this uh, survival mechanism is our brains worry. Now, worry is interesting because not only does it, 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 is it reinforcing in that sense because it feels better to be doing something than doing nothing when we're anxious, but it also feeds back and makes us more anxious. Okay. You mentioned there scrolling on social media. Do you think in your, in your research and your work in your lab, is, is there very strong links between that and giving rise to anxiety in the moment? We haven't studied it specifically, but okay. there's a fair amount of work showing that scrolling on social media is not, let's, let's just put it this way. It's not good for our health. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. It can make people more depressed. It can make them more anxious. Uh, and in fact, it can just, you know, can lead to the habit of distracting ourselves through, through uh, scrolling on social media. So people then to start to learn the habit of procrastinating, which also isn't good for them. Okay. One of the key takeaways of your book, um, which is something that for me changed my whole perspective when, you know, a couple of years ago, a good few years ago now, my anxiety was, was so bad. I wasn't functioning. I was in a terrible, terrible place. And I was trying so desperately to think my way out of it. And I think now the more I talk to people with this podcast and different things, that's the, the first roadblock people come up against is trying to think their way out of anxiety. And you are like me of the belief that we have to like drop that rope. It's not something we can just cognitively think our way out of. I'd love to, to ask you about your, your thoughts on that and why you're so strong on that. Yes, there's a huge emphasis in the West on this kind of just do it mentality where, you know, we use our willpower to overcome things. And in fact, and I write a little bit about this in the Unwinding Anxiety book, there's a relief on the Parthenon in ancient, from ancient Greece. So, you know, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, if not over a thousand years ago, where there's this, this rider and this horse and the horse depicts our passions. So you can think of anxiety being one of those and the riders are willpower. Well, we all know which one is stronger yet, yet there's all this emphasis on this, this weak rider of the horse. Why not focus on the rider, on the horse itself? So here, you know, in modern day, the idea is to just, just stop it. In fact, there was a, I love this skit from Bob Newhart, who was a comedian from the 1970s where uh, he, it's called just stop it. Uh, you can find it on YouTube where woman walks into the therapist's office, you know, and basically says, oh, you know, I've got this problem. And he leans over his desk and says, just stop it, hmm. you know? So that there's an appeal to us because it's simple. Yet the problem is that's not how our brains work. <laughs> you know, the, the willpower part of our brain is the youngest and the weakest part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective. It's the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed or anxious. So why would we possibly put so much emphasis on it besides the fact that we just, you know, we just, it sounds like a good idea. Yeah. 
absolutely and what happens when we try to think our way out of anxiety what happens in the brain well <laughs> we tend to get frustrated and we tend to get exhausted you know the more we try to do you know, try to spin our wheels to to figure something out or solve a problem the more rabbit holes we go down in fact i see this a ton in my clinic where you know i have patients who come in and they're very anxious and then they get stuck in another habit loop which is i call it the why habit loop where they they try to figure out what it is that's triggering their anxiety like basically why they're anxious because they they think oh if i can just figure out what it is then i can solve the problem and then i will not be anxious anymore well that's not how our brains work okay very interesting okay let's talk about the habit loop this is such an interesting framework for me to think of it in the same way we develop habits good and bad with the trigger the behavior and i guess the well not a reward in the case of anxiety but the results so so tell me about this whole way that you've approached anxiety and i guess this is your way of managing it or hacking it or getting in control of it yes so you know if, if the willpower approach doesn't work you know and i'm, I'm a neuroscientist so i'm you know i, I want to understand the mechanisms by which something is driven and so, and I'm also a clinician, so I want to figure out, you know, how we can help people. And so I started looking to see what it is that drives habits. And it turns out that there's a very evolutionarily conserved process that's, you know, you can think of it as, I just call it the habit loop for shorthand, where we, you know, our ancient ancestors, when they were out on the savanna foraging for food, they had to learn where food was. And so our brains were set up to have this process, which only takes three elements, as you already mentioned, uh, a trigger behavior and a result. So if you think of them out on the savanna foraging for food, they find some food, there's the trigger, they eat the food, there's the behavior, and then their stomach sends this dopamine signal to their brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So this mechanism is set up really to help us set down uh, context-dependent memories, basically. It says, okay, you know, when you go back to your cave, you got to remember where that food was so you, when, so you can find it again tomorrow. The same is true for avoiding danger. You know, you see the proverbial saber-toothed tiger, you run away, and then you survive. So this mechanism is still very alive and very well in modern day, yet it's used in different ways now. So, you know, we tend to not have to remember where food is. We just have to remember where our kitchen is or where our <laughs> phone is so we can order some food and have it delivered. So our brains are still at play. And this is where anxiety actually gets driven as a habit. So unpleasant feeling of anxiety, that's the trigger. That triggers the behavior of worrying. So it's a mental behavior and that mental behavior makes us feel like we're in control or at least we're doing something. And that feels better than anxiety. And in fact, that feeds back so that the next time we feel anxious, we start worrying again and it starts to spiral out of control. So worry is what we turn to as a, an attempted solution to the anxiety. That's one of the big ones. Yes. I also see, you know, people procrastinate, people drink alcohol, people eat food, people go to their social media. There are a lot of different ways that people try to deal with their anxiety, but worry is one of the biggest ones. So would you say that in anyone who is suffering with anxiety that they're caught up in this habit loop? I would say 98% of the time, uh, somebody who has a lot of anxiety, the worry is driving it. Yes. So the trigger is the anxiety, the worry is the behavior, then what's the result? More anxiety? 
Yes, in fact, it is because the there at some point there was a reward where it's you know it's like oh I'm doing something. Well, you can think of this as you know one example that I like to use is let's say parents whose uh, whose teenage children just get their driver's license or something and they they take the car out for the first time to go you know go out with their friends. When the parent sits there worrying about the kid's safety, I can promise you not one thought of worry is keeping that kid safe, yet it feels better than doing nothing. And so there's, there's an example of where worry is just you know, driving this process. And that worrying is actually making them more anxious because they think of all the worst case scenarios, all the things that could happen. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So with worrying, uh, there's a lot of talk in the wellness sphere that, you know, you should allow yourself to worry. And sometimes for me, it, it helps to let my thoughts run to the worst case scenario and get out of my system to avoid it popping up like in the middle of the night or at an inopportune time. And in a way of confronting your worst fears, you kind of take the horns off them. Would would you think that worrying is something we we should try and not do? And it seems almost like don't think of a pink elephant. Of course, you're gonna think of a pink elephant. Yes. So I think it depends on how we approach the worrying. So worrying is going to happen, especially if it's a habit. And so like you're saying, if we just say, you know, just stop worrying, it's not going to work. Yet, if we look, if we go back to the neuroscience, how is any habit perpetuated? Well, it really depends on how rewarding it is. So here, and I actually write this out in this three-step process in my book, the first step is being able to map out these habit loops. What's the trigger? What's the behavior, which tends to be worry or any other you know, behavior. And then what's the result? The second step is really tapping into how rewarding the behavior is. And the reason I emphasize this is because if something is rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. If it is not rewarding, we're going to stop. And I'll give a different example than anxiety. And then we'll come back to the worry piece in terms of how rewarding it is. 
So my lab just finished a study with, we have this app called Eat Right Now. And these are apps that anybody can download and, and use. But the idea with this Eat Right Now app was to help people who struggle with overeating or emotional eating or things like that. And we embedded this tool, this mindfulness tool in the, in the program so that when somebody was craving food, they could bring out this tool and it could help them walk. It basically, it helped them pay attention as they were eating. And in particular, it had them focus on the result of the eating. And that this is critical because if something is rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. If it's not rewarding, we're going to stop, as I mentioned earlier. So by having people pay attention as they overate, they realized pretty quickly that overeating doesn't feel very good. And it only took 10 to 15 times of somebody doing this for the reward value, basically the reward value in their mind drops below zero where they start to shift that behavior. So the key take home here is, you know, the neuroscience shows that if you want to change any behavior, you've got to really dive into the reward value piece. We can do this with eating. We can do this with smoking, having people pay attention as they smoke. And we can do this with worrying. When somebody's worrying, we can have them stop and ask themselves, what am I getting from this? Like dropping into their direct experience so they can see very clearly that the worrying isn't keeping their family member safe. It's not solving the problem. It's not making the uncertain more certain. And in fact, it's actually just driving more anxiety. When they see that, they start to become disenchanted with that behavior. When they do that, it makes it much easier to step out of the worry habit loop. And in fact, you know, we, we did, we've done several clinical studies with this, un, we, with this unwinding anxiety app. And we found in one study with anxious physicians, we got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. And another study with people with generalized anxiety disorder, we got a 67% reduction in anxiety. Wow. And so, so what were these people doing then? They were acknowledging that the worrying wasn't serving them well. And then what? Well, with that, the third step is, and I give a bunch of different ways that people can do this in the book, but the third step is basically finding what I call the BBO, the bigger, better offer. Okay. So if our brain is going to do behaviors that are rewarding and it, our brains start to see that worrying isn't that rewarding, we've got to give our brain something better. And that something better, I mean, we could drink alcohol, we could go on social media, we could eat, but those things tend to cause problems unto themselves. So here we teach people to focus on things that are intrinsically rewarding. And these tend to come in two flavors. One is curiosity and one is kindness. So for example, if somebody's worrying, they can actually bring some curiosity to that moment and drop into their body and say, hmm, what does this, what does this my body feel like as I worry? Is it tightness? Is it tension? Is it burning? Is it this? Is it that? And it helps them start to really unpack the concept of worry, you know, worrying and anxiety into the direct physical sensations. And they can start to see, oh, these are just physical sensations, not necessarily pleasant, but these are physical sensations. And if I just accept them, allow them to be here, they'll come and go on their own. Just like you were actually talking about, you know, acknowledge that worry is there, but don't feed it. And that not feeding it piece it comes in the form of just being curious and just observing it and watching these sensations come and go. Okay, so this makes a lot of sense if you're thinking about something that pops up in your day that is a very identifiable trigger. But I'd love to just ask you, and I don't mean to sound like I'm challenging you on your- um, oh, Challenge away, challenge <laughs> Brilliant away. framework, but say for example, when I was in a very anxious phase and it was, I would describe it as like 
anxious waves and what started as anxiety about a job switch that I made that I didn't I wasn't happy in it grew arms and legs to the point that I was just day in day out suffering with anxiety to the point that I couldn't leave my house and what helped me understand it was not just the neuroscience but the impact of the of of the anxiety on my hormones which I then that's when I said okay you can't think your way out of this because the hormones need time to catch up and to recalibrate but what I found in in understanding how the the constant stress and the wearing down of my of my the the amygdala firing off left right and center all the time in, in situations that it found to be threatening it it made me feel that I was in a permanent threat state and my prefrontal cortex couldn't work the way it normally did and then all my thoughts were tinged with fear. So I just had a fearful outlook on everything in life. So there wasn't something I could really put my finger on and say, don't worry about this one thing because I was just, I was just in the depths of anxiety. I wasn't worrying about something in particular. I was just a, like, it was awful. So like, I don't know if I was, was I in a habit? Was it a massive big habit that I couldn't even tell the trigger from the behavior from the reward? Or had I just gone so far over the edge that it, you know, it wouldn't be applicable? Then this is absolutely applicable. And I see this a lot, you know, in my clinic patients come in and they say, I just feel, you know, I wake up in the morning and I feel anxious all day. So here we can think of when there's the feeling of anxiety, it often triggers worrying. So it doesn't, I'm not hearing from you that there's a ton of worry that was happening. There was just the feeling of anxiety. So if anybody has anxiety that's triggering worrying, they can apply, you know, this, you know, they can map out the habit loops, they can start to see what they're getting from the worrying, and they can work with it that way. If they're just noticing the physical sensations of anxiety, the key there is still to bring in these bigger, better offers of curiosity. So when there's anxiety, if we can learn to acknowledge it, accept that it's there, and explore the sensations moment to moment to moment, as you're pointing out, we can start to see, oh, this is just my brain that thinks there's a threat state. There is no danger here. These are physical sensations that come and go. And in that, in that way, we do not feed the anxiety where we, you know, we're not stoking the fires. And then we can learn to relate to it differently. Oh, these are, these are sensations. I can be with these. I, I can be okay with these. And that was it for me. Eventually, it was like allowing myself to sit with the discomfort and like you say, get curious about it. And and for me, though, a part of it was and something that I would tend to to advocate would be to kind of understand where it's coming from so that you can say, OK, well, this makes sense to sort of let yourself off the hook because you don't want people to feel, well, this is all my fault. This is this bad habit that I'm in, that, it, that this is, you know, I'm doing this to myself, which just for me would perpetuate more anxiety. So you want people to work with themselves as opposed to working against themselves. So do you, you mentioned earlier about the obsession that people have with needing to know why. Do you not think we need to know why or it, what, what would your thoughts be there? Well, if, if you look at the neuroscience, the need, the why is not nearly as important as the what. The what is, let's say, what somebody's worrying, and that their brain is going to either perpetuate that habitually if they're not paying attention, or that there is, you know, their brain still thinks that there's some reward there, and that's what that's what feeds back and drives future behavior is how rewarding something is. So if it's helpful and somebody can identify why, great, there's no problem there. But for a lot of folks, they can't, they can't identify why. And the trigger is actually the least important piece here. If something is triggering anxiety, the anxiety is already triggered in this moment. So if it's something, you know, and, and I'm a psychiatrist, so often, you know, I'm trained, oh, you know, let's go back to people's childhood and yeah. things like that. 
Well, the so if somebody goes back to their childhood and they figure out, okay, it was this that caused me to start getting anxious. Great. You know, and if they can understand that, great. That's, that's, that can be very helpful for them. The problem is that that's not what's driving the anxiety today. There's something that's triggering their anxiety or their anxiety is just coming up without any trigger. And so it's how they work with the anxiety today that's actually critical. So the past, you know, if you look at these neuroscience equations, somebody's childhood is nowhere in the equations around how future behavior is driven. Okay. Certainly something can trigger it. And like you're saying, if somebody can identify something and it, you know, they can say, okay, this is why it's happened. That can give somebody relief. The other thing, you know, I, the other thing that anybody can identify is, oh, this is our ancient brain that is trying to survive in our modern day world. And if they can understand, it's just their brain that's kind of tweaked slightly, you know, a way that's trying to help them survive, but it's not really, that can be tremendously helpful in itself. I'll give you an example. I had a patient who, um, you know, she, as she started to see that her anxiety habit loops were just, you know, they're driven. She didn't often couldn't identify the trigger. She couldn't figure out what it was in her childhood or whatever that, that caused it. She used this little mantra where every time she recognized that she was starting to trip into anxiety and into one of these loops, she would just say to herself, oh, that's just my brain. And it would be a reminder that it's her brain. It's not her fault. It's not something that you know she can do anything about beyond just bring awareness to it and allow it to be there and allow those sensations to come up. But that, oh, that's just my brain helped her remember all of that and not get caught up in it again. And also not get caught up in, oh, why is this happening again? How can I, how can I try to fix it? Okay. So more observant than problem solving ends up being the solution really is just to allow, allow it to happen. I'd love to ask you about how you came to these conclusions, you know, in your, in your lab and your clinic over however many years of work, you know, what were you seeing that was the common problem and, and how did you eventually relate anxiety to this habit loop which we, we read so much about in every other way about bad habits we, I've never heard it in the framework of anxiety before yes and I hadn't either I didn't learn this in in medical school or residency so this was somewhat serendipitous I was studying you know my lab studies habit change and we've been studying how mindfulness can help people break bad habits we've been doing that for decades and we'd you know, learned a bunch of things about how this works. And we'd done a bunch of clinical studies with like, you know, smoking, for example, we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking or with our, with our Eat Right Now app, we got a 40% reduction in craving related eating. And in studying this Eat Right Now app, somebody was saying, you know, they were mapping out their habit loop around stress eating. And they, they said, you know, it's anxiety that's driving my stress eating. Can you actually develop a program for that? And I was thinking, well... I prescribe medications for anxiety. You know, this isn't really my lane, but it put a bug in my ear and I started researching and I went back and looked at the literature. And it turns out that from the 1980s, folks were suggesting that anxiety could be driven through negative reinforcement like any other habit. And that's when this bell went off in my brain and said, oh, wait a minute, I never thought about anxiety that way before. And I know how to work with habits. So I started testing this in my clinic to see if my patients could understand this, if this was their experience. And then of course, you know, wanted to study this in my lab. So we developed this unwinding anxiety app 
And we did the studies, you know, can we actually approach anxiety through this habit loop perspective and will it work? And this is where we got, you know, that 57% reduction in anxiety in the first study, we got a 67% reduction in the second study. So lo and behold, it does work. And we could even work out the mechanisms, you know, we can go into those if you're interested, but here, okay. So, (laughs) so basically we could find that mindfulness training specifically increases people's ability to be non-reactive to emotions. So basically not get caught up in negative emotions, right? So like you and I've been talking about, if we can observe the feelings of anxiety and not get caught up in them, that's helpful. Well, we found that mindfulness, in fact, when we look at these measures, increases non-reactivity and that non-reactivity specifically mediates a reduction in worry. That reduction in worry mediates a reduction in anxiety in these clinically validated anxiety scores. So here we could even work out the psychological mechanisms that were specific to the mindfulness training people were getting. That's so interesting. I say you were thrilled when you when you realized that something that seemed like a happy accident ended up being something so needed in, in the world of anxiety, especially today. I I have to say, I every day I pinch myself at how lucky the serendipity, you know, the serendipity was and how, you know, just happened to be that I'm a psychiatrist, happened to be that I'm a neuroscientist, happened to be that we're studying habit change, happened to be that we could develop, you know, these app-based mindfulness training programs. And then boom, you know, it's, it's really helping with this huge clinical need. You know, in fact, it's reducing my own anxiety. As an example, when I prescribe medications, there's this medical term called number needed to treat, meaning it gives us a sense for how many people you need to give a treatment to before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. With medications, with our best medications out there, that number needed to treat is 5.2, meaning that I have to treat five patients before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. So I was basically playing the medication lottery. I didn't know which of the five next five people I treated was going to be, you know, was going to show a, a reduction. And then what I was going to do with the other four, the other 80%. So in our studies, we actually found that that number needed to treat was 1.6. So much better yeah. than the, the medications I was pre- uh, you know, prescribing for people. So has it changed your whole approach in your job as a psychiatrist? I don't have a psychology or a psychiatrist background. Everything that I know is purely from just exploring it my own in my own interest to try and help myself with my anxiety. But it sounds like psychiatry background and, and talking about past trauma and going back to childhood is very Freudian. Whereas would I be right in saying that what you're talking about being in the here and now is more like Adlerian? I would say it's neuroscientific. So I'm, I'm basically approaching this from how does the brain work? How do we perpetuate anxiety? And then how can we target those specific mechanisms? So, you know, I I would say it's, it's, you know, I wouldn't name it after a person because there are tons of researchers that did, you know, that did the seminal work showing how habits are formed. Even Eric Kendall got the Nobel prize showing that this process is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the C-slick. So I would say, it's neuroscientific area. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're just focused on the you fact. Got that word, yeah. <laughs> okay, I would love to ask you some more specific questions around t- taking your approach for a listener who is maybe suffering with panic attacks. How would you advise they deal with a panic attack in real time? So if it's a panic attack in real time, that tends to mean, you know, if you think of panic, 
the definition is basically like wildly unthinking behavior, <laughs> you know, anxiety that's coming, kind of gone off the rails. So when somebody is panicking, they're really, their thinking and planning brain is offline. They can't do anything. So the first thing that I have people do is do some type of a grounding exercise. Some of my favorites, and I write a bunch about different ways that people can do this in my book, but one of my favorites is this five finger breathing practice where I have somebody, um, you know, basically take the index finger of one hand and start tracing the fingers of their other hand as they're breathing. So as they breathe in, they trace up a finger. As they breathe out, they trace down that finger. You know, and you can imagine over the course of five breaths, we've traced from our pinky to our thumb. Over the course of 10 breaths, you've traced back to your pinky. So doing something that can just ground us so that we can get our thinking and planning brain back online. Once we do some type of a grounding practice, then we can map out these habit loops. So this, you know, that that step around, you know, what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the result? And I actually write about a patient with panic disorder in my in my book and how he worked with panic this way. The second step is to see, you know, what am I getting? And, and panic disorder is interesting because it's not necessarily about the panic attacks. It's about that, you know, anxiety about the, the possible anxiety. You know, it's like panic about the panic where people start to avoid things that lead to, that are associated with panic attacks. They start to change their behavior and they start to worry that they might have more panic attacks. So there they can bring in this process and ask themselves, you know, what am I getting from worrying about having panic attacks and see that, you know, the worrying isn't helping anything. And then they can start to bring in curiosity. And as people start to learn to be more curious with anxiety, they can build their skills so they get, they get better and better and better to the point where they can even ride out full-blown panic attacks. Acts, uh, when with with these practices. In fact, I, I did that myself during residency. I used to get panic attacks, and I've used these practices myself to be able to ride out a full blown panic attack and also have that cleanly end so that I'm not worrying that I will have another panic attack down the road. Yeah. And in terms of becoming more curious in the moment, whether it's a panic attack or you're just in like a, a week of, of bad anxiety, what kind of questions are we to ask ourselves in order to get clarity and get that curiosity resolved? The, the main question that I like having people ask themselves, especially in this place where they're exploring that cause and effect relationship between the worrying or whatever the behavior is and the result, is what am I getting from this? And getting curious about what, what the anxiety feels like in their body. Other questions that we can ask are, you know, if they feel anxiety, they can feel into their body and ask, where do I feel it most in my body? You know, is it on the right side or the left side? Is it more on the front or more in the back? What that does is it starts to awaken that curiosity. Hmm, well, where is it? And that hmm indicates that we are, we're actually getting more curious in that moment. Okay, okay. Something that you mentioned earlier about the, uh, the habit loop and asking, well, what am I getting out of this and what's the reward? When I would, was in the depths of my anxiety, I suppose it would have been very hard, a hard pill to swallow to... I guess, to have it suggested that there was any kind of a reward involved in something that you were so miserable in and trying so hard, I, I guess wrongly trying to get rid of. But how do we avoid people applying the habit loop framework to their anxiety and not like blaming themselves for it? Because with other habits, you know, we blame ourselves, whether it's overeating or, you know, anything like procrastinating, we, we, we look at it as this is my fault, I've gotten into this habit. 
Um, and yeah. with, with anxiety, you know, you don't want to add more anxiety to the situation by saying this is all your fault. Absolutely. I'm glad you bring this up because this is really important. So in addition to curiosity, we can also bring in another flavor of, of these third gear practices, which is kindness. And so we can apply these same tools to any self-blame or shame or guilt uh, that we, as we do to the worry habit loops or any other habit loop. So, you know, let's say the anxiety, I can't get my anxiety under control. So there's a thought that might be the trigger that triggers us to beat ourselves up. Oh, you know, I'm no good or whatever. So there's the mental behavior is beating ourselves up or judging ourselves. And then the result is we feel worse. So we can actually map that out. We can ask ourselves, what do I get from beating myself up? And then we can shift into third gear where we say, well, let me try something different. What if I just practice being kind to myself? And even something as simple as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a patient who was saying, oh, that's just my brain. There's an act of self-kindness. Instead of judging herself for, oh, you know, what's wrong with me? She would just remind herself, oh, that's just my brain. There's an act of self-kindness. And self-kindness feels much better than self-judgment. So as we start to bring that in, that helps us not get caught up in those habit loops. And from a neuroscience perspective, I'm always banging on about self-compassion. I think people just kind of roll their eyes at self-kindness and think, oh, if I could just be nice to myself, I would have done that by now. But for me, it was a game changer when I learned how it can actually dampen down that anxiety response and how we think that you know we go into self-critic mode thinking that you know the tough love will motivate us out of the situation that we're in and actually we just launch an attack on ourselves so when you apply the neuroscience to it you can't really argue with it so yeah what have you found with self-compassion and the neuroscience what we found, so uh, if you remember the, the posterior cingulate gets activated yeah. when somebody gets caught up in anxiety and it gets activated basically when we beat ourselves up as well. What we found is that uh, specific practices called loving kindness, for example, where we're just being kind to ourselves, that spe specifically deactivates this same uh, default mode network, especially the posterior cingulate cortex. So we find not only does the brain get quieter, the brain regions that get activated when we get you know, caught up in, in self-judgment, but also we did a recent study, we haven't published this yet, but basically we did a study to, to ask people, this is like hundreds of people, you know, basically anybody that speaks English. So we wanted to see, you know, what is, um, how rewarding are things like anger and self-judgment versus kindness? And of course it's a no brainer, but we had to do the study to prove it. Kindness feels better. And so there's in, there's an intrinsically more rewarding quality to kindness. It's, it's more rewarding. So of course our brains are gonna lean in that direction as long as we can identify what it feels like to be kind to ourselves. That's the critical piece. So when we're judging ourselves, we can ask ourselves, what does this feel like? What do I get from this? And when we're kind to ourselves, we can ask ourselves, what does this feel like? And of course the kindness is the bigger, better offer. Okay, so kindness, you say, turns off or shuts off the posterior cingulate cortex? Yes, it certainly quiets it down. Quiets it down. So is that, I guess, the goal with anxiety is to figure out all of the different things that could possibly quiet down and soothe the posterior cingulate cortex? And is that a curiosity of yours now to explore further? <laughs> it certainly is a curiosity of mine. What we find is that there's a general category that covers a lot of territory. So in this same study that I just mentioned, we asked people across a bunch of different mental states, uh, which, which of these feel closed and which feel open. 
And in fact, the open states feel more rewarding. And the open states tend to be kindness, curiosity, um, you know, compassion, connectedness, things like that. And so here, what we can look for is not only look at that cause and effect relationship in, in terms of anxiety, which tends to close us down, but we can also look at the cause and effect relationship with curiosity. What does it feel like? It tends to open us up. So we can look for the practices that help open us up. For example, I would include gratitude in the category of kindness. Gratitude also opens us up, makes us feel more open. Okay. It's so it's just so interesting. Oh my God, I could talk to you for hours, but I'm conscious that you're a busy man and I'll have to let you go soon. But just to wrap up, you mentioned in the beginning, just to go back there about, you know, the anxiety epidemic or pandemic that we're dealing with being really all to do with uncertainty. And for me, a huge part of getting to a point of, you know, feeling well again and being just thriving again was just understanding, just the knowledge of everything we're talking about here what's going on it's not necessarily that you you don't even have to have done something about it yet you don't have to have put any action in place but for me just knowing what I'm dealing with and how normal it is and how much it makes sense that dissolves the uncertainty so have you noticed in in any research or from a neuroscientific perspective does just knowing this stuff down regulate the anxiety at all you know we haven't looked specifically neuroscientifically but I can tell you from my clinic uh, just even mapping out people's anxiety habit loops is tremendously helpful. It's a, it's a huge first step. It's kind of like, you know, people have been groping around in a dark room, you know, forever. And, and you flip the light switch on and they say, oh, <laughs> here's what's here. You know, it illuminates their mind. So yes, it reduces that uncertainty and makes people feel much better. Just to be extra clear there, so that's not going back and necessarily finding out where the anxiety is coming from, like back in your past. That's just looking at the loop in this moment, the trigger in this yes. moment. Yes, and seeing how we're driving our own anxiety. And that's the key. We don't necessarily need to put together this whole picture that makes sense of, of everything. No, I mean, certainly if it's helpful for somebody, they can do that. And for everyone, <laughs> mapping out these habit loops can, is, it can be very helpful. Okay, and you give us everything we need in, in the book on Unwinding Anxiety to get mapping ourselves and, and see what we're dealing with. Yes, yes. And in fact, we have a free habit mapper that anybody can download uh, just from the website mapmyhabit.com. So that's a place that anybody can get started. Amazing. Dr. Judd, I can't thank you enough for giving me your time and answering all my questions. I so appreciate it. It's so interesting. I'm such a nerd. I feel like I'm fangirling here for, for everything <laughs> you're saying is just really, it's, it's fascinating. And it's more like knowledge is power. It just gives us more information to, you know, equip ourselves with to be able to to really proactively get in, in the driving seat of our anxiety when, when it's something people can feel so overwhelmed by. So so thank you so much. Thank you for doing all your incredible work for, for making everyone you know feel better and giving us all these tools. And huge congratulations on your New York Times bestseller. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for having me. My pleasure. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. 
Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access a full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.